So number 348 has been announced. Uh, Jeff did that, and we're delighted to make that particular selection and use that at the appropriate time in our service this morning. As always, we're so thankful for the presence of each and every one, our membership, our visitors alike, and it's our trust and our desire that certainly for the next few moments we can, as a part of our worship, give our attention to that which is the proclamation of the Word of God. And interesting enough, that's really the topic and the subject sitting before us for consideration this morning. In fact, this very next slide that we shall consider harkens us back to the series of lessons in which we are currently engaged. Namely, some two weeks ago today, we considered a lesson reminding us of the very nature of worship. Acts of reverence directed to God. As a part of that, we distinguished what many times men consider to be worship as opposed to what the Scripture says constitutes worship. Then last week we turned our attention to two acceptable acts of worship. On the one hand was prayer, the avenue in which we approach God in the way that the Scriptures have identified through that avenue of prayer. And also we looked at the contribution, that aspect monetarily related in which we, as we've been prospered, give in fact back to God. Today let's give consideration to another element of worship. And in the chapters that we read this past week, Romans chapter 10 lifts high the banner of preaching and teaching. And so today, as we devote some consideration to that topic, I hope we can all be reminded, in fact encouraged, as we appreciate the avenue and the place of preaching and teaching in the very act of worship itself. In fact, as we come to the particular text before us, this acceptable worship known as preaching and teaching. This next slide is one that I prepared, hopeful that it would set us to consider more in detail some of the features before us. In John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, in the very heart of that discussion in which Jesus made conversation with that Samaritan woman at the well, you may remember that the Lord at one point made this dramatic statement. He said, The hour is coming, and now is, when they that worship, the true worshipers, shall worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. And you and I often reflect upon the next passage. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. You might notice the context in which those statements were found. In the days of the Old Testament, there was a specialized place. The Jews were supposed to go to Jerusalem. That's where the tabernacle was, and later that's where the temple was. And we even remember the Gentiles themselves went to a certain mount, Mount Gerizim. And here this woman's question to the Lord then, well, what about the specificness? of a location, and Jesus forevermore said, it's not where any longer, it is how. What matters in regard to worship is not where it takes place in this present era. That is wholly irrelevant and immaterial. That which is of utmost significance is how is the worship done? Is it done in spirit? Is it done in truth? And you and I in this course of studies have been giving some thought to what constitutes this worship that's done in spirit and in truth. It is for that reason you might notice some of these comments. We realize so wonderfully that our God is majestic and He's infinite and He's awesome. 
In Romans chapter 11, another one of the chapters we read this past week, beginning in verse 33 of that chapter, wasn't it true that Paul, in that marvelous doxology, he made statement how unsearchable are his ways, his judgments, and his ways past finding out. When you and I assemble and approach our God in worship, it is not that we are approaching someone who is on our level. He is far higher than we. He is far greater than we. Did He not tell through the agency of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9, My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts above your thoughts and my ways above yours. The human family then makes a gigantic error when they think that they can figure out, apart from His revelation, how to approach Him. No wonder then the element of truth is such a vital and essential part. For without God's description of how He's to be worshipped, we would have no idea. No wonder in light of those comments you appreciate this. Have you ever noticed the structure of virtually any church building you can think of? whether you enter it personally or see it on TV. There's always chairs, pews, some kind of places for the audience to see it, but they're always directed to the same place. There's a certain placement. Often it's a stage with a pulpit, but there's a location in which there's supposedly the proclamation and declaration of that which is far greater than the audience. And it's not the preacher. It's what he has to say. It's what He sets forth. It's those things that He has to say that really come from, at least intended, God Himself. And so the audience sits in a way directing their attention toward that location and position. You give thought, our building, like the others, of course, is designed in a way like that. There's a place here where a gentleman, a man, stands and proclaims with confidence that which is the unsearchable riches of Christ, Ephesians 3.8. As he does so, we are in attention to that which he has to say. It's no wonder that some of those bottom statements then come before us. The role of preaching in the services of the church that we call worship. There was not too many years ago a particular movement that sought to de-emphasize preaching and sought to emphasize in far greater magnitude the other attributes like singing. Now, we certainly would not for a moment seek to de-emphasize singing. That, too, is a scriptural and commanded part of worship. But those of that movement wished to relegate preaching off to a non-essential and almost non-existent part of worship. And we would quickly say they were in error who supported such a movement. For as we shall study this morning, the Bible has so very much to say about the place of preaching in worship. In fact, isn't it true that among the five acts of acceptable worship, preaching occupies a very unique position in the contribution we give of our means back to God. In prayer, we often magnify and approach Him, but isn't it true that in the preaching, we allow Him to direct us? We sit with astute attention to an open Bible and let Him tell us the directions and the proclamation of matters. There's a great difference in that. In preaching, we receive from Him. In the others, in many ways, we are giving back to Him. 
What does that tell us then about the role of the preaching? Let's develop that thought a bit more thoroughly and a bit more carefully as we proceed to the next slide. In so doing, might we begin it like this. The very thought of preaching suggests that there's an attentiveness to that which is proclaimed, a hearing of it, if you will. And immediately our mind races to give consideration to some of these thoughts. Jesus Himself, while on the Mount of Transfiguration, was in a position in which the following words were said, The God of heaven, although Elijah as well as Moses were there, two of the greatest lawgivers that Israel had ever known, Moses could be argued was the greatest of its specific human lawgivers. And as far as Elijah, no greater man perhaps had there been who pleaded for Israel to God. And yet although those two were there, didn't the God of heaven say, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him. It was time now to hear the Master. It was time to hear one greater than Moses, one greater than Elijah, so much so then that there's often an emphasis upon hearing what the Master had to say. And today, our continual hearing of that thing. I would invite you in consideration to recall those famous words closing the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 beginning in verse 24. There you remember that Jesus Himself, as He spoke these words, He likened some to a wise man. This man was one who built his house, of course, on a rock. And although the weather elements came against it, it stood strong and it did not give way. But might we recall, who was this wise man? Jesus carefully identified the one who hears these sayings of mine and does them is likened to a wise man. But then he continued and said, there's also a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And although the weather elements came against it, that house fell, and great was its fall. Who, I might ask, was the foolish man? The Lord said, that one is characteristic of those who hear but do not do. Did you notice? Both of them heard, however. We might now ask, what would be characteristic of those who do not even hear? They'd be worse than fools. They'd be worse than the one characterized here as the foolish man. Doesn't that, among other things, insist upon you and me the emphasis, the needfulness, the essentiality of hearing? You'll even move beyond that and notice how often the Bible encourages us to both hear and to do. In James 1 verse 22, Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. That attribute of deception that often clouds and characterizes the human family when they become apprised of information but fail to apply it. And legions are those today who in the religious world are in that predicament. They have heard in one way or another but have failed to hear properly and have failed to apply that which has been heard. You'll notice in light of all those things, the Lord's unforgettable statement of Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 and following. I say unforgettable because it still must rest with you and me as we contemplate the nature of judgment. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. For many shall say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? 
Then will I say unto them, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. You'll notice here were individuals who had not heard as thoroughly and completely as they ought to have done. Doesn't that bring us almost full circle? It is vitally essential then for pews and for chairs and for seating to be arranged in a way where we can hear one who with authority can present and speak that which is the Word of God and which shall be opened at judgment. It is true, isn't it, that the day is coming that we'll have to face this Word again. Far better it is to hear it now, make the proper changes and adjustments, so that then it shall be a pleasant experience to hear it the second time. As you come forward on that slide to one of the last statements then, isn't it amazing how frequently the Scriptures encourage us, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Every one of the seven churches of Asia was admonished in that regard in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And even Jesus in Matthew 13, 9, in the very heart of that parable known as the parable of the sower of the seed, He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear. No wonder you and I then should be those of hearing disposition, ready to hear the Word of God. Come back with me for a moment to the lesson text in Romans chapter 10, verses 13 to 15 that Brother Derek read just a moment ago. On that occasion, Paul, in the very midst of this powerful statement to the church in Rome, he said, verse 13, "...whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved." That's a straightforward and powerful expression of the revelation of heaven. The one, the person, man or woman, who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And now Paul expounds upon that presentation. Verse 14, How shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? We immediately learn that calling on the Lord demands a belief. It demands an appreciation of that which you and I would call the initial elements of faith. But Paul still isn't finished. How shall they believe on Him in whom they've not heard? One of the immediate things we appreciate from that passage is this. The religion of Jesus Christ our Lord is fundamentally different than the vast number of religions that so often we find on the face of this planet. After all, in the days of the Old Testament, often that characteristic of religion occurred by virtue of birth. You were born a Jew or you were not. You were born into the seed of Abraham or you were not. And if you were not, there wasn't much you could do about it. You could convert over to it. But remember in the book of Deuteronomy, they were looked upon slightly differently in some regards. Notice though how it is in religion today. To serve Christ, I can't just claim lineage to God by physical birth. Notice today it comes as one hears. You and I have to be apprised of something. There is certain information that we must come to realize, and that's done, among other ways, by preaching. When someone preaches that which is the truth of God, individuals can then become aware of that information and proceed to make the proper adjustments and responses in life. How shall they believe in whom they've not heard? Hearing is important, isn't it? As you and I give thought to that appreciation, notice how that slide ends. Preaching then is an inspired part of proper worship unto God. It is an opportunity to hear what God has to say. 
an opportunity that we might develop in the following way. I would submit that, among other things, we could immediately recollect some of those features of preaching even in the Old Testament era and ask what place that had in the worship of that day. I realize we often don't think so much about preaching in light of the tabernacle or even in light of the temple. But may we never forget that instruction had a vital part even under the law of Moses. Among other passages, revisit the 8th chapter of Nehemiah with me briefly. In the first eight verses of that chapter, we have an amazing presentation. A presentation that went somewhat like this, if I may paraphrase it. The children of Israel had wandered a bit, as we often remember, from the truth and completeness of the Word of God. On this occasion, they had now come back from their days of Babylonian captivity for 70 years, during that period of time, they had been aloof from the temple. That temple, remember, had been burned and ransacked, 2 Kings 25.9 tells us. And yet, as they came back, Nehemiah had rebuilt that wall of Jerusalem, and thus there was an element of protection provided again. Now, notice these first eight verses. The people assembled. The text on two occasions says it was men and women and all that could understand. That would include children. They were all assembled in one location, and Ezra stood up. He stood up on a pulpit, the text says. They had built a scaffold for him to stand on. And as he was there above them, when he opened the Word of God, they all stood up because of respect for that Word. And he read to them from morning until midday. For several hours he read to them out of the book of God, and they listened with attention they listened with an air of desiring to understand. In fact, as Ezra read to them, there then were specific individuals, the priests, who expounded what Ezra had just read. You'll notice verse number 8 summarizes the whole proceeding like this. So Ezra read verse number 8, and as he read to them, the desire was that they might distinctly understand the reading and so that they could put into action that which was read. That is a central statement of that which characterizes the preaching part of worship today. He calls the people to understand with distinctness and clarity. Isn't that an amazing passage? Doesn't that again speak to the whole nature of what is involved in preaching? As you and I develop that thought perhaps more clearly... Think about the examples then of some New Testament individuals like the Apostle Paul. In Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In 1 Corinthians 9.16, Paul said, Woe is it to me if I preach not the gospel. In Paul's inspired reflections upon the matter of preaching... Maybe none comes more quickly to mind than that text in 1 Corinthians 1.21. There wasn't it true that Paul powerfully said that God has chosen to save the human family through the agency of preaching. May then we never discredit or discount the place of preaching and worship. It is an inspired part of what God would wish for you and me to include in proper aspect of our truthful worship unto Him. The further developments of that point bring us to realize what it is that preacher has at his disposal. In Ephesians 6.17, the sword of the Spirit. 
is the Word of God. The preacher, you see, carries a sword. It's no physical sword, but it is that Word of God. And as he expounds it, as he elucidates it, as he preaches it, all of us are blessed and benefited by understanding that which he shares with us, the place of preaching. The privilege and the power of preaching is truly a magnificent thing to behold. May you and I encourage our young men in mind as they grow up to think about someday being preachers. Our world needs faithful gospel preachers. So many congregations in this county and those that surround it seemingly are reaching points when it's more challenging and difficult to find a preacher. As you and I give thought to that, what a precious and wonderful thing it is to encourage a young man from an early age to consider preaching. May we as parents and even as the church family purchase him study materials if that is appropriate, assist him, encourage him, exhort him toward that end. Truly, you and I notice as the Word of God reveals it that the preacher is truly a special individual in the light of the message he brings. We'll develop that thought more thoroughly in just a moment. But one other thought as we come to it is this. The specialness with which one considers that message that he shares. In 1 Thessalonians 2.13, as Paul made reference to the church in Thessalonica, listen to this complimentary statement. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Paul stated then that those Thessalonians had heard the word of God from Paul and his companions as they proclaimed and preached it. And thankfully the congregation received it as it was delivered the word of God. They didn't receive it as stories and myths and fables and bare tales. When Paul and his companions climbed into the pulpit, if you will, and preached, they preached the Word of God. They didn't share the latest matter from the Wall Street Journal. Their sermon for the day wasn't built upon the characteristic of Aesop's fables or the latest literary developments in the world of literature. Those things are for a different place and time. They are not the sole reason for the pulpit, are they? Not only that, you appreciate the thought develops to that admonition that Paul gave Timothy. In the closing chapter of that second book, book of 2 Timothy, Paul said, Timothy, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. That issue, that admonishment to preach the word, as often as you and I recollect, Timothy found himself in a very challenging set of circumstances because Ephesus was not the most friendly place to the gospel. There were forces and influences there, tremendous in strength, and yet in their midst, Paul still told Timothy, preach the word. Today, you and I hunger and thirst for it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Because there, doesn't it say that, Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And so we desire that this pulpit be flaming with the Word of God and filled with that which is none other and nothing else than the proclamation of His truth. Maybe for that very reason you appreciate how often the Bible lifts high the presentation of His Word. In the 119th Psalm, the longest chapter in all the Bible, 
176 verses found in that one chapter. And all but just a handful of them exalt the nature of the God's Word. All but a handful. Listen to just a sampling of them. Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Verse 105. Verse number 140. Thy Word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. Verses 15 and 16. I will meditate in thy precepts and have respect unto thy ways. I will delight myself also in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. You may notice verse number 130. The entrance of thy word giveth light and giveth understanding unto the simple. Verse 128. Therefore I esteem all thy precepts to be right and I hate every false way. Verse 160. Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. And those are just a sampling of the beauty spot that we find in the 119th Psalm. The highlight is the word of God. You and I notice as you come near the bottom of that slide then, what a strong and interesting statement it is. Of all the prophets of the Old Testament, Perhaps Jonah's the one that we recall as the reluctant prophet. He was told to go and preach to Nineveh, and he didn't at first. But yet in the midst of that very book in which we find a preacher who rejected his commission, he did come to his senses. And in chapter 3, verse 2 of that book, God said, Jonah, you go to Nineveh and preach the preaching which I bid thee to preach. Maybe that's the finest Old Testament verse on preaching to be found anywhere. Preach the preaching which I bid thee to preach. Jonah did go then. And what a great response there was when even the Ninevites repented from the greatest even to the least and God spared that empire. Amazing, isn't it? The power of the Word of God. I would submit then as we come to the next slide and develop the issue of that power and see its implications. Doesn't it stand in such stark contrast to the whimsical doctrines of men? Jesus did say, didn't He, in Matthew 15, 9, that they who worship Him using the doctrines and commandments of men do so in vain. For it is not found to be full of power and greatness and that which is the revelation of the matter of God. For those reasons, consider some of these matters with me. You and I, naturally, based on a number of the Bible's presentations, then come to appreciate these things. The preacher's life is a matter to be considered. It is a matter that has a degree of importance attached to it. Now we realize he isn't perfect. But we realize that if his words and that which he says are to be taken seriously, his life must be one of gravity. And it must be one characteristic of the seriousness of his calling and the mission that he has taken upon himself to preach the Word of God. Just a few passages then that highlight that thought. What is it that Paul directed Timothy, who, remember, was a young preacher in 1 Timothy 4 verse 12? To Timothy, didn't Paul say, Be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in purity, in verity, in faith. Timothy, if his message was to be accepted, then his life was to be reminiscent of and characteristic of that which he preached. You and I have today a slogan we often use, practice what you preach. Surely it would be expected 
that the preacher's life should mimic that which he with boldness proclaims to others. If not, one can't help but question how committed is he to that which he preaches. How serious does he take the message? It's safe to say that he will likely have very few who will be overtly moved and compelled by what he has to say if his life doesn't reflect the intensity and seriousness of the message. Every person that stands in this pulpit, you and I would expect then his life to be characterized by verses like that one. You may notice also in 1 Timothy 4 verse 16, the last verse of that chapter, we have another statement that touches that same subject in which there of that preacher again, Paul told him, not only will you save yourself, but those that hear you. There is to be seen an intensity and a beautiful blessing as it respects the reward of God to those who submit to that word. As you develop that thought perhaps more carefully, doesn't that then suggest this? That he again is to preach the word. And though you and I noted earlier, that surely is not based upon the things of society and culture and those whimsical matters of man. That implies that he must give some time to preparation and to study and to making it ready. For after all, he handles something far greater than just he himself. He handles the Word of God. And there are souls hanging in the balance of eternity based on how he handles it. If he preaches error, if he in fact preaches that which is not the truth, then there could be souls impacted and affected as they proceed off on the way of falsehood. Study. Some years ago, this was on a radio program now, mind you, never in a place like this one or anywhere like it. I heard a gentleman make the statement as I listened to that radio program. He said, even while I was standing there during the song, I had no idea yet what I was going to preach. But while I was walking up here, the Spirit moved me to deliver this lesson. I can't help but feel sorry for the congregation that sat at the feet of any such nonsense as that. There is preparation and ready study to be needful. 2 Timothy 2.15 still says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That truth must be rightly divided. It isn't going to come automatically. It doesn't come by osmosis or diffusion. It comes as one seeks to impart and to study with care that which is the revelation of heaven. You'll notice in light of a comment like that one, this matter of studying to show thyself approved, how often then do we find that admonishment, in fact, in the Word of God itself? I would invite you to think with me about passages like a number of those I've listed. In the days of the Old Testament, in Ezekiel 3, verses 2 and following, we find there the ancient prophet Ezekiel who labored down by the river Kibar among God's people in Babylonian captivity. God, in fact, presented to Ezekiel proverbially a book, and He said, Ezekiel, you thoroughly eat it up. You digest thoroughly that book, and then with it you go, verse 3, and speak with my word unto the people of Israel. He was to have ingested in that sense that book and then to share it with those to whom He preached. And was it John, the revelator, told the same in Revelation chapter 10? Again, thoroughly eat it up. 
amazingly, isn't it, when we reflect then on those other statements that we find characteristic of those who proclaim and preach. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verse number 2, in the days of the Old Testament, that prophet Habakkuk, God told him these words, Habakkuk, write the vision, make it plain that those who read it may run. Habakkuk was to proclaim and speak with such clarity and with such degree of understanding that they couldn't help but appreciate the message and immediately put it into practice. That means again that those who preach should desire to present God's Word with clearness. After all, that's the way He has presented it to us. It shouldn't be a discombobulated, non-understandable mess. It should be presented with organized clarity. It should be presented with a degree so that the individuals who are present can understand the thrust, the objective of the message, and draw from it truths that can assist them in their walk toward heaven. Bold preaching. In Acts 14, verses 1 through 3, we find of, even on the missionary journey that there Paul so powerfully asserted the boldness that characterized the preaching of him and that which was his companions. Bold preaching. You and I should recognize that it's not inappropriate for the Word of God to be presented in a way that sometimes makes us squirm. All of us, preacher included. When the Word of God has things to say that sometimes make us think twice, am I in fact doing all that I should or can? God's Word challenges every one of us. And any time a preacher points to an audience, there's at least as many fingers pointed back to him. He is just as much a subject of the lesson as anyone else. When we reflect upon the matter then of preaching, it brings us to some of the last thoughts of that slide. The wonderful response that should be characteristic of all of us as the Word of God is presented. We've used a number of passages today to remind ourselves of hearing the Word of God, being attentive to what the Word of God has to say. What then about you and me during the course of the sermon? Do we spend days ahead of time planning to take a nap? Is that a particular time we allow ourselves to plan the week's menu? Do we use that as a time to clip our fingernails and wonder when He's ever going to hush? I realize well that as we think about the matter of preaching, if we're making plans like that, we're not attentive to the Word of God as we should be. We're not setting aside a time during the week for God to specifically speak and talk to us as we should. Paul and the others of whom we read in the New Testament did in fact preach with power and did so with great gravity. Today, we're still blessed with the opportunity in worship to engage in a study of His Word by virtue of preaching. The last slide of our lesson this morning will be this one and it's a conclusion. A conclusion that helps us see one more time about the role of preaching and I saved it to last. We find 153 times in the Bible the particular word preach or some form of it and amazingly enough 141 of them are in the New Testament. The New Testament, the testament beneath which you and I serve and live today is preaching a vital part of worship? Absolutely. Is it an important part? Surely it is. 
And we have the opportunity in that to allow God to instruct us, to challenge us, sometimes to rebuke us. But in so doing, these last thoughts then are ours. Jesus himself, of course, was a preacher. Luke chapter 4, verses 20 and following. He even quoted from Isaiah 61 in that text. Today, as you and I then think about the presentation of the Word of God, how blessed it is that God can speak to us in the ways that He does, but He does it through His Word. May you and I be diligent. May we be attentive. May we be those who are ever ready to heed that which we find in the Word of God. The gospel plan of salvation is one of those things found in that Word. Are you a faithful Christian? If you've reached that age of knowing wrong from right and knowing that Jesus Christ died for you and you haven't yet obeyed the precious message that is that gospel plan of salvation, why not do it today? That plan reads like this. You need to believe Jesus to be the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His name as the Messiah, and be baptized. And if we could assist you in that way today, we'd be honored. If you have known that salvation and its way, but no longer are faithful to it, why not come back today to your first love and allow the Word of God to sink deeply again within your heart and to follow it daily. If we could help you by praying unto God on your behalf, we'd be happy to do that too. If we could be of assistance in either of these ways today, don't delay, but come even now while together we stand and while we sing.